If you're an accredited investor looking for an incredible opportunity to invest your money, I have exactly what you're looking for. I have put together a fund where we are loaning money to fix and flip investors for their investment properties. And I'm looking for investors right now. We provide steady income for our investors. We are focused on capital preservation. We have minimum target of returns that we plan on giving back to our investors. And this opportunity is incredible. Like I said, this fund is lending to the best of the best. And we're looking for people to come aboard and be investors and go along for the ride as this thing grows. I'm super excited about it. Right now, we're only talking to accredited investors. So if that's you and you want more information, reach out to me at mike at juststartrealestate.com and I will get you all the information. Guys, this fund is amazing and we are so different from everybody else. And one of the biggest differences, we don't just lend money to anybody. Anybody who comes along with an application doesn't get money from us. You have to have a track record. We have to know that your business is strong and healthy. And that's who we lend to because our commitment to our investors is that we will protect their money and we will give them consistent, reliable returns. Guys, if you're interested in this and you want to come along on that journey with me and my company, reach out to me now, mike at juststartrealestate.com. I cannot wait to talk to you. When I say the only question is whether you want to actively shape the culture to everyone's benefit, what I'm saying is you, your company, whether it's just you, which means the company's personality and its culture is basically you and your personality, obviously, because nobody's there. But once you start building a team and putting people in place and plugging people into different roles, if you don't pay attention to your company's culture, how your company feels to work at, the likelihood of the culture being great, it's next to zero because having a good company culture is something that happens on purpose. It does not happen by accident. It happens on purpose. You have to purposefully create, foster, and nurture a good company culture. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right. Thank you for joining me here on Just Our Real Estate. I appreciate it. I'm coming back to you with another live Q&A that I'm replaying for you on this podcast because I think they are really valuable. There's a lot of good content there, a lot of great questions that I know you guys have too. So stay tuned for that. I think you're going to really like this one. We talk about all kinds of stuff. We talk about hiring a management team, right? When you get to that point in your business where you need management level people to help you run, organize, and manage manage your team. Uh, also, we talked about single family versus multifamily investing, where you should start. What does that look like? Is one harder than the other? Um, we talked about whether or not a virtual team or a freelance type team is right for you and some tools to manage your team more effectively and just a ton of stuff actually. So, and we also talked about the market, right? I get that question a lot. What about the, you know, should I wait to invest? Should I, should I wait until conditions are different? Should I kind of ride this market out and see what happens? And we, we talked about all that stuff. So uh, I'm really excited for that guys. Also, if you haven't heard, and if you haven't heard, you've not been listening to this program, but I'm going to say it again. I have developed a new program. It's the first 
thing that I've developed for you guys. Uh, I've heard you over the years. I've worked with literally hundreds of new and experienced investors alike uh, over the last five or six years, just hundreds of you. And I have really developed something that I think is going to be super impactful and super powerful. And the best part about it is it's super, super easy to be a part of and super economical. It doesn't break the bank and you get me for four weeks, and I really am focused on helping people build and grow their real estate investing company this year. Not in two years, not in five years. There's plenty of time this year for you to get off the ground or to start scaling up and getting a lot more traction and doing more deals. And I really want to help you guys. If you want to check that out and get more information, you can go to businessfasttrackblueprint.com. That's businessfasttrackblueprint.com trackblueprint.com. Go check it out. I want to help you out. The next round is starting in September, early September. So go check it out now. Get involved. Guys, I want to help you blow up your business this year or even just get you off the ground. If you're sitting on the sidelines and you haven't gotten started yet, let's change that now. I want to help you. I've helped tons of people do the exact same thing. Now's the time for you. Go check it out. All right, guys, let's dive into today's show. Thank you once again for coming. Uh, we do this every week, like I said, at 7 o'clock Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Uh, this is a lot of fun. This is something that when I started doing it, to be perfectly honest, I was nervous, uh, a little stressed out about it, um, because when I first started, there were tons and tons of technical issues, which we've mostly beaten, which is awesome, but I have grown to really look forward to this. It feels like I'm kind of logging on and, and talking to friends. So uh, I appreciate everyone who logs onto these each week. I appreciate those of you who uh, send me uh, questions through email and through DMs and all these different ways that you guys send, send questions. Uh, it's a lot of fun to come on here and answer questions each week and get to interact with you. So uh, please try to log on live because, hey, you can just get questions answered and it's a lot of fun. Uh, but if you don't uh, log on live, we do post this. So it's there every week. We pin it to the top, I believe, each week or it's right there toward the top. So you can find it, you can reference it. And if you are interested, you can even go to my podcast every Thursday. We replay these Q&As so that if you're one of my listeners on my podcast, you can see it there um, and hear it there. I should say not see it, but you can hear it there. So that is many ways that you can get a hold of the information. But the best way by far is to just log on here. Also, I'm pretty psyched and I'm pretty uh, revved up today because today was the first day, the launch of my business fast track blueprint. I've been talking about it for a number of weeks now. Today is finally the day that it went live and we had a blast. We had a ton of people in there, uh, some good conversations. We shared some good stuff. There was some good material, uh, really important material that was shared with people who are trying to launch their business as well as people who are uh, trying to scale. So we're going to help those folks. I am intensely focused on them. I want them to succeed uh, at uh, all costs to myself. So I'm going to be make myself available to them and we're having a blast so far. So if you were not able to get in on this round, it's okay. Go to businessfasttrackblueprint.com and get signed up and get in the queue and get on the waiting list for the next group so you do not miss it. I'm telling you, it's going to be great the second time around. We're going to learn a ton this time around. We're going to help a ton of people. And then we're going to go back in and we're going to you know, always try to improve like we, you know, you do in any business, you always try to improve so that you're staying ahead of the game, ahead of the curve, and you're always over delivering. So that's what I plan on doing. 
Okay, <clears throat> let's dive in here. Uh, I'm going to just start at the top here and start answering questions. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay, first question. How do you know when hiring a management team if they are the right fit? It's a great question <clears throat> because this is a question that implies you already have a company, you already have started building a team, and now you're bringing in or promoting management, right? So management sometimes is a little bit of a different story because you, you're not, you know, when you hire people in the beginning, you're trying to have them do a specific function usually and, you know, real, a specific skill set, and you're going to have them handle one part of your business. When you start bringing in management, that implies that there's going to be a level of um, management of people managing other people. And so you need someone who not only has some skill sets that complement your team or that you can utilize. Because a lot of us listening to this, myself included, you don't have such a big team that your managers can just sit in an ivory tower and give commands from up there. A lot of times our management people in our, in our smaller companies have to roll up their sleeves and kind of get to work and get some things done. They have to produce some things. So you need someone who can produce, someone who can get the respect of the people who are on the team already when they come in, someone who can gain the confidence of the team, they can be, you know, hopefully liked as, as well as respected, and they're able to manage people. So that's a, that's a tall order. <clears throat> so when you're hiring people, how do you know they're the right fit? Well, there's a lot of things, right? You have an interview process, so you're going to talk to these folks, at least hopefully, especially if it's a manager, you're going to do at least you're going to have at least three conversations, right? You're going to, you should have a, an initial phone conversation. And I like that first conversation to be short. I like it to be about 10 or 15 minutes. And all I'm trying to accomplish in 10 or 15 minutes of talking to somebody on the phone that I'm thinking about hiring is if you've ever hired people in your career and you'll know what I'm talking about. If you've ever hired people and sometimes you get that person who comes in and you know, within five or 10 minutes, there's no way you would ever hire them for whatever reason, maybe, you know, they just don't mesh or you can just tell their, their um, goals don't align, or maybe they're just combative or they're late or they're not dressed appropriately for the interview or whatever it is. Right. I've had plenty of times where I could, I just knew I wasn't going to be interested in hiring that person. So why bring them in for an hour or two of your time and make everyone uncomfortable, especially 15 minutes in, you know, you're just trying to get through it. So we always have a phone interview that's 10 or 15 minutes. It's kind of a get to know you. I give them a little bit of an overview of the job, but really what I want to accomplish in that 10 or 15 minutes is I want to give them enough room to sort of lay, to show their hand. So I will ask very open-ended questions like, tell me a little bit about your last employer. And you'd be surprised how many people will launch into putting down their former uh, managers, the people they reported to, the company in general, the ownership of the company, the philosophy of the company. And they'll just start criticizing like right off the bat. And that's just not a great fit for me and for what I'm trying to build on my team. If someone is that willing to let their first impression of them be that of a complainer and finger pointer. I know that I'll never, I'll never mesh with them. I'll never work well with them. So that first conversation is that second conversation uh, is probably a little bit longer. Could be like at a coffee shop, um, 
you know, maybe, maybe over lunch where we have more of an informal conversation just to kind of get to know somebody a little bit. The next move would be to bring them in for a formal interview with myself and maybe one or two other people uh, on my team to give, you know, cause I, I can, I'm not perfect, right? I can misread people. I can miss something they say or not notice something that I should have noticed. And so bringing in one or two people from my team to help me with the interview is always a great way to give us ourselves a 360 degree look. So at, at minimum, those are the three conversations that we're going to have over the phone, something informal over coffee, maybe, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, and then we'll meet if it still makes sense for everybody. By the way, they're interviewing me too. Hopefully they're also evaluating whether or not I'm somebody that they want to work with. So that's how it works. And then they come in and, and we kind of, you know, either make a final decision then, or we bring them in for another formal interview with other members of our team, just to see if it all makes sense. So how do you know? It's not perfect. We also do uh, personality assessments. So there's something called the disc, the Colby, the culture index. There's a lot of different, um, different tests that people can take to, to give you a sense of who they are and what they're made of and their tendencies and how they best learn and how they are best managed. So we have people take those tests too, because if I'm looking for someone who's very independent, very hard driving, very focused on the goals and getting things done at all costs and all that, I know if they take these assessments, I know what, what it should look like. I know what the results should look like if I want someone who's very hard charging as to as opposed to somebody who maybe uh, has a lot of patience and a lot of detail. Like if I want someone with a lot of patience and a high level of detail and expertise, then I know what that looks like in the disc and the Colby and the culture index. So we use those assessments to make sure that we're bringing in someone who's wired the way we need them to be wired to be successful for the job. And then the interview process is just really figuring out whether or not they're an actual good fit, right? Because they may be wired appropriately, but they don't have the right background and experience or they don't have the right temperament or whatever to, to be really, really great at the job. But, um, but there's a bit of luck. I, I'm not going to lie. Like I know, I, you know a lot of people are going to scream when I say that. And I have friends who are really, really, really expert hiring uh, people. They're really an expert at it. They're great at it. They've given presentations on stage, and on stage in front of hundreds of people about how to hire. And they have a method that should produce good results. But I still say, and I would tell them if they were on here right now, I don't think they are. Let me see. I don't think so. I would tell them there's a bit of luck involved because I've seen all of the things go properly during the hiring process. And then the person doesn't work out. So um, and I've also seen people who hired someone they maybe shouldn't have on paper, didn't make a lot of sense on paper, and they worked out really, really well. So there is a bit of luck, but there's a way that you can kind of hedge your bet to make sure that you're not making a huge mistake with management. Um, but you have to watch them closely. You have to give them clear expectations. You have to manage your managers. You have to understand how they're motivated, right? What are they motivated by? What's under, you know, what's under the hood for them? Are they, are they somebody who needs direct um, you know, direct communication, or do you need to be a little bit softer with, with criticism or, you know, with, with, uh, approaching them with challenges. So that's a really long answer. I know, but it's important because I've hired management and I've, I've really done a bad job at times and I've done a really, really good job at times. So 
you know, it's something you have to be really, really careful of, obviously. And, and also managers, um, you know, by definition, they tend to make a little bit more money. You have to pay them a little bit more a lot of times or have to give them a bigger commission or what have you. So you have to be really careful. Uh, so hire slow, fire fast. I think that that old adage is absolutely appropriate. You should always try to take your time during the hiring process and don't let people hang around longer than you should if they're just not working out. It's not fair to you. It's not fair to your team. It's not fair to them. You, you owe it to them to let them know as early as you can that it's not working out so they can move on to a, a position that works better for them. Okay, so that's how to hire a management team. How do you suggest, and oh, sorry, do you suggest investing in single family or multifamily homes when starting off investing in real estate? You know, this is really an easy question. It, it, I, I don't suggest one or the other. I went with single family. That's what I started with. It was probably mostly ignorance and fear that kept me from going toward multifamily early on. I didn't think that I could. I thought it was a much more risky proposition. Um, I didn't know how to do it. That was the ignorance part, right? I wasn't being ignorant. I just was ignorant of what it took to do real uh, multifamily real estate. So I didn't do it. Um, if I had to do it all over again, would I do it differently? I don't know. I'm I'm heading in the direction of multifamily down the road. I'm still not doing multifamily. It's not ignorant and ignorance and fear anymore. It's bandwidth. I just don't have the bandwidth to give it the time that it deserves right now. So I'm not doing it at the moment. But multifamily is something that I am highly, highly, highly interested in and will absolutely be involved in uh, within the next 12 to 18 months. I just need to free up some bandwidth and some time. And I'm in the process of selling some rentals. So once those get sold, it'll free up some capital. So things that I need to put in place to get it done. But um, yeah, I don't think one is better over the other. I, I think it's temperament. It's what do you want? What you, what are your goals? And uh, how long do you want to wait to get there? What kind of a learning curve do you want? What kind of involvement do you want to have to have in this in this endeavor? Those are the questions you have to answer before you know whether or not multifamily or single family is better. But multifamily, I don't think that multifamily is harder or more risky necessarily. It's all kind of the same idea. It's bigger numbers. So if that to you means more risk, then, then I guess there's more risk. But it's not really more risk because the size of the risk in terms of the dollars isn't doesn't correlate to the size of the actual risk or how risky it is, right? So, you know, just because you're you have more money on the line, it doesn't mean it's a riskier investment. It just means that there's more money on the line, if that makes sense. So that's that's what I think about multifamily and single family. Do I need to build a team to have success or can I use virtual virtual and freelance? Well, it's an interesting question. I think virtual and freelance can be your team. I know people who have built a team, pretty large team, honestly, using virtual and freelance. Um, you know, I still consider someone who's a contractor for me part of my team. Matter of fact, my entire team at one point was all contract employees, like 1099 employees. So I think that's a team. Um, but I think I want to answer the spirit of what I think the question being asked should I build a local team? Uh, that lives around me, that comes into an office, or at least has physical, you know, access to each other, or a virtual or freelance kind of a thing. Um, I'm more, I'm more of a guy who uh, likes having the local people around, the people that work for me being local. But I don't think a virtual team is less effective. I just think a virtual team sometimes takes a higher level of management than I am good at giving. I'm way better 
at hiring people who need very little uh, handholding and guidance and very little structure, and they work better with less parameters and less structure. Those are the kind of folks that I tend to manage better because that's who I am. I, I don't want structure and I don't want to be micromanaged and I don't need a lot of instruction. I need to know what the goal is. I need to understand the parameters and then just let me go do it. And so that's those are the kind of people I tend to hire. When you hire virtual or freelance, if they're not in your company full-time or they don't work just for you and they have a bunch of different other employers, you tend to have to manage them a little bit more closely, a little bit more detailed than, than someone who maybe works just for you and they're full-time and they can immerse themselves in your business and they can get it and kind of move on. So that's where these assessments come in, right? These, these the DISC and the Colby and the Culture Index. I, I know what I am. I know how my personality assessments always look when I take them. And so I know the kind of people that I need to hire because I'm good at managing them. And if I hire someone who's not easy for me to manage, I need to have somebody who manages them that I manage, right? So maybe there's a layer between us because it's a recipe for disaster to hire someone who's virtual. Let's just use the Philippines as an example, because a lot of people hire virtual assistants in the Philippines because of the cost. It's very inexpensive. But if you hire someone from the Philippines and give them a position in your company, usually it fails if you don't give them clear, concise, specific direction. If you give them a vague, here's a bunch of stuff, like kind of figure it out, like let me know what you think, it's, it's going to crash and burn. I'm telling you, it's going to crash and burn. I've seen it a million times. I've done it more than once. I've heard other people do it. I've talked to companies that specifically um, they hire people from the Philippines. Like that's their their company is finding you an assistant from the Philippines. They they do that, and so I've talked to them about how you know best practices, and it's always boils down to clear expectations, clear direction, a very very clear checklist of things that need to get done, with maybe videos to kind of show exactly how it's done, and then you can let them go, and and they'll they'll kill it. They'll they'll knock it out of the park. But if you give them vague instructions or no instructions and you want them to just like, you know, kind of independent thinking, like figured out, just deductive reasoning, it, that's not how it works. So be careful if you're building a virtual or freelance team that's remote. You might need to spend a little bit more time creating structure, creating a very specific uh, job description and in something that accompanies that videos or something that they can use to reference to know exactly what to do if there's a question. So, um, but I like the local team personally, it just works better for me. I like talking in person a little bit better than talking virtually. So um, if we were all in a room and you guys were all in a, you know, a big room watching me, this would be, you know, that'd be my jam. I love that. This is great because I can't get that done, but obviously, but um, you know, giving, giving instruction to someone who's virtual and kind of having that virtual team, it's not ideal for me. So that's why I, I don't typically do it. What tools do you use to manage your team more effectively? It's a good question because, you know, I said we're all local, which is true, but we all work from home. So it's kind of a lot, you know, we, to be fair, full disclosure, we had a physical office that everyone came into for like two or three years. So we all worked together for like two or three years. And then at some point we just said, you know what? This office is kind of a waste of space. It's, it's big. We don't use a lot of it. Um, at the time we were downsizing a little bit. So we all work from home now. So we are working virtual kind of, but uh, we're local, I guess. So it's like local virtual. Um, but we use, we, you know, I do use the, the Colby and the disc and the culture index. So I know what my team 
is sort of made of from a personality standpoint. I know how they like to be managed. I know how they like to be communicated to. I know what's important to them as a person um, and just their makeup of, of what they're made of. I just know those things. So it's easier for me to manage. So those things I use to manage, but some of the physical tools or, or like practical tools, we use um, Google Drive. We use Google Docs so that everything can be shared and dynamically updated. That really helps. Um, we do use some videos for instructions so we could record like a Zoom video, like I'm on Zoom right now. We could record a Zoom video and, and upload that to the drive so we can give detailed instructions about work, you know, work spe uh, specifications, things like that. Um, the day-to-day -day communication, we use WhatsApp. So instead of using like our native phone um, SMS or our native phone, phone texting, we use WhatsApp. And it's great because if we go out of the country, we can use it. We do have we actually have one VA that works for us part-time who's out, out of the country and it works for her in her country. Um, we can send files, we can send voice memos, which is huge. I'm a big voice memo guy because I don't love typing on my phone. So I can just hit a button, record a message, send it off to our dispositions guy, and we can have a conversation that way, which is really, really cool. And uh, it's really secure. So we use, we use that a lot. And we have a CRM that we use that kind of keeps track of all of our leads. And we communicate a little bit in there, just stuff specific to a lead, but we use a CRM to communicate with each other. So that's really the main things that we use to, um, to kind of work together is Google Suite, um, our CRM, WhatsApp, and then I have personality assessments that I've taken. So I know how everyone's sort of wired and that's that's really how we do it. We have uh, weekly meetings for the whole team where we get together and talk about everything going on in the company, all the deals, how we're going to you know, move them and what, what exit strategy we're going to use for all the deals. So um, that's kind of a high level overview, but that's sort of how we, we run our team. Have you ever used Fiverr or Upwork to hire somebody? Yeah, this is kind of going back to the VA and the freelance, right? It's, it's a similar question. I have used Upwork. I do. I am using them right now, actually, for something. It's not for my real estate company, but I am using them. And we have used Fiverr um, for uh, social media stuff and some of the stuff I do my, for my podcast. We use VAs and freelancers for those. Fiverr is a is a unique kind of an interesting thing. I think Fiverr is great for projects, like a one off project. It's great for transactional relationship stuff, like hey, do this for me, and I'll pay you this. And then it gets done and you pay them and it's over with. Ongoing work, it can be done. We, we were doing it um, for a while. Ongoing work can be done, but I think Fiverr, that's not the strength of Fiverr. The strength of Fiverr is I need to create this PDF. I need to create this explainer video. I need to create you know this logo. You go there, get it done. They finish it and the transaction's over and the relationship is ended until you need the next thing. Having someone work for you like five days a week um, five hours a day, you know, that's not really Fiverr strength. They're more project-based. Upwork, you can do that. But again, I think Upwork is a little more project-based. doesn't have to be, but I think it, it works better as a project type um, relationship. Uh, but there are VA services that's, that are designed for them to work for you part-time as an employee. I just don't think that Fiverr is a good fit for that. Upwork is not a great fit. It's better than Fiverr for that, but it's not a great fit. I think those services are much better for, I have a one-off project. There's a start and an end date. There's a start and an end expectation. And, and you do that. And I think it can work really, really well. Okay. We've got some questions rolling in here live. It looks like, <clears throat> have you ever used, oh, we got that one in your book, Level Jumping. You talk extensively about workplace culture. Can you explain what you mean when you say the only question is whether you want to actively shape 
the culture to everyone's benefit. So I do talk a lot about culture and level jumping. And the reason why I talk about it there is I feel like I have, it felt like a longer form uh, method or mode of getting the information into people's hands that I think they really need. The problem that I have when I talk to people about starting or growing their business, which are the two things that I really focus on, starting a business and growing a business. I've seen it before, guys. I actually went to a conference last weekend where I was on stage speaking, and part of my presentation was about culture. And a lot of times when I talk about culture, I can see people shifting in their chair. I can see them looking down at their phones, and they start drifting because culture in a company feels like a very touchy-feely kind of soft, soft concept that isn't required for success. And I think that's a huge, huge mistake. When I say the only question is whether you want to actively shape the culture to everyone's benefit, what I'm saying is you, your company, whether it's just you, which means the company's personality and its culture is basically you and your personality, obviously, because nobody's there. But once you start building a team and putting people in place and plugging people into different roles, if you don't pay attention to your company's culture, how your company feels to work at, the likelihood of the culture being great or being really, really good, it's next to zero because having a good company culture is something that happens um, on purpose. It does not happen by accident. It happens on purpose. You have to purposefully create, foster, and nurture a good company culture. And I know it's important because I know firsthand because when I started really growing my company, like exponential growth in 2000 and late 2015, early 2016, my company started experiencing exponential growth. And we were bringing people in and just burning right through them. We'd bring them in, we'd throw them in the fire. We'd say, we, here's what we expect from you. If they didn't do it, they're out in 30 days and we, and we, bring another warm body and throw at the problem. And, and we were just churning people in our company. Nobody loved working there. It was really stressful. There was absolutely no gratitude from ownership about what was going on. We were just focused on making money and scaling. And that's all we were focused on. We weren't focused on our people at all. And as a consequence of that, we turned through, we went through, burned through, I should say, a lot of people. We had a lot of hiring and firing going on. It was like a it was like a turnstile. It was just people coming in and out all the time. And it was really difficult for us to get a lot of sustained momentum doing that. We shot up like a rocket and then we sort of leveled off for a while until we started realizing, hey, maybe all these people are not leaving because of them. Maybe they're not just bad people or you know, bad fit or they just don't get it or they don't care or they don't want to win or they're not winners. Maybe it isn't all that. Maybe part of it is us. Maybe me and my partner, maybe we just suck to work for. Maybe we're just crappy bosses. And it really turned out to be more that, you know? So whenever you have a situation like that in your company where you just can't seem to keep people or you can't keep them motivated or they don't seem like they care or they don't seem like they enjoy it, you need to look at yourself because usually the culture of a company goes top down. And when you're in a humongous company, like if you're at Apple, you know, probably departmentally, there's different cultures. You know, there's a, there's a company culture. But have you ever worked at a company where I've had kind of both of these, where I worked at a company where nobody was happy, 
but my person I reported to was really awesome. And he or she created a good atmosphere from everybody who worked for them. And so I kind of enjoyed going to work because I liked who I worked for. I liked the people I worked with, but everyone else in the company was miserable. And I've had the opposite where I worked for a company where everybody seemed pretty happy, generally happy, but I hated my department. I hated the person I worked for. I thought they were an idiot and I thought that they just didn't know what they were doing. And so I just wasn't happy. So that, that environment, that culture in a small company goes from the ownership down. And so if you're not good to your people, if you don't you know, show them any sort of like interpersonal interaction, um, I talk in my book a lot about making deposits in the relationship bank. You can't just come into work every day as a boss or as an owner or as a director or manager or whatever it is. You can't just come into work and just tell people when they do things wrong and then stay away when they're doing things right. Because all you're doing is you're, you're debiting the account, you're debiting that relationship account. But if you go into work every day and genuinely get to know people, genuinely care about their lives and what, what's going on and learn what makes them tick, like, like socially interaction, right? Like understanding that, you know, maybe they have a, a son or a daughter who's having health problems. And then you, they talk to you a little bit about it and you can ask, Hey, how is he doing? How is she doing? And you know, Hey, how was that, that doctor's appointment you had yesterday? Right? Like they were supposed to be able to, and then you start having these connections and you're, now you're making, you're putting credit, you're crediting the account and the more you should credit the account more than you debit it. Right? So this it is no really not a lot of different than raising kids, right? You don't want to raise your kids where you're just screaming at them all the time. You never ever tell them anything they do right. Employees are similar. You need to have that personal re, uh, relationship with them on some level. Like obviously, you don't want to cross lines, and it's you know it's like your your best friends now, so you can't manage them. But just get to know them, learn about their life, really take interest in them, so that when you do have to have a conversation about something that isn't going well, or something you need them to fix or change or get better at. It's like, hey, he's got my back. You know, he does actually care about me. And so they receive that a little bit better. And that's important because if you don't, you just, you're just this person who comes into their life only to give them grief and only to make them stressed out. And then you leave and you never say a word when things are going well. And that just stinks, right? So um, culture is huge. You know, there's two things that I talk about a lot that I sometimes get blank stares or people gloss over. It's, it's really understanding your why, why you do things, why you want to build a business, what's important to you, what motivates you most, why are you doing what you're doing? That and company culture. People resist it because it's not getting them a new deal. It's not helping them make more money in the short term. That short term, that short sightedness, right? That is why people sometimes gloss over when I talk about some of the long term things that you have to think about and, and your why and the culture of your company are some of those things. Okay. Next question, uh, looks like Nathan asked, what percentage of what you do changes with the environment? A hold, uh, cold, or steady market? Okay, I got it. I was like, wait, if I have a cold, what do I do? Okay, cold or steady market? I'm thinking along the lines of buy and hold, flip, wholesale. In summary, are you wholesaling or moving more homes now because the market is hot? Um, Nathan, when in the real estate market, it's a cycle. Okay. A friend of mine, Terry Berger, uh, was also talking at the conference I was at this past weekend, and he was showing a graph over decades, the real estate market. And it looks like a heartbeat. It's like, boom, 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 boom. But it's always like on this 
like if you if you pan back the years enough, it's going on an upward trajectory, but it's like up, down, up, down, up, down, but up in the long term, right? The reason I say that is because the real estate market is almost always good for somebody. And if you are paying attention and you know what market cycle you're in, it can be good for you. So the question is, your summary question is, are you wholesaling or moving more homes now because the market is hot? I'm moving houses easier and at a higher profit because the market's hot. To say that I'm moving more would be a lie because when the market is hot, like it is now, once you have that property under contract or you own it, it's super easy and super profitable to sell because we're in a hot seller's market. The problem with the seller's market is it's a little bit more difficult to find deals on the front end. So once I have them, yeah, it's like hot potatoes. Like I can't believe the prices I'm getting for houses now as a wholesale or as a flip. I can't believe it. It's amazing. Things are appraising really high. Everyone's asking over, you know, they're offering over asking. It's super easy. The problem is on the front end, sellers know this too. So it's, it's a little bit more challenging to buy on the front end because it's just a hot market, right? But when the market changes and now the market isn't hot, you know, it's cold, as you say, or it's on hold, it's going to be easier to buy. So I will buy probably more. So in a hot market, you usually buy less, sell for more. In a colder market, you buy more, sell for less because the market is either stagnant or it's declining. And in a de declining market, profits tend to be a little bit lower. You know, individual deals can be super hot and you can make a lot of money, obviously, right? But overall, as a, as a general rule of thumb, you're going to buy higher volume, sell for a little less in a cold market. In a hot market, you'll buy less and sell for a lot more. So we're in the buy less, sell for a lot more market, just where we are, right? So um, it's great. So when people ask me all the time, how's the market? It's great. Because I know how to, I know how to run my business in all real estate markets, and so I just adapt and I, I change my philosophies to match the uh, the market that I'm in, and it, and it all works out. So don't ever think of the market as, um, don't ever think of the market as good or bad. It's not, and even hot and cold is a bit of a of a generalization because it's it's a it's whose perspective are you talking about? Like if you talk to a wholesaler. A hot market could be a declining market. It's hot because I can just pick up so much stuff for so cheap, right? In a, in a, in a hot market, you're paying more, you're selling for more, and you're buying less, by the way. In a, in a declining market, it's hot for a wholesaler because I'm buying stuff cheap, right? Maybe I'll hold on to them as rentals or I'll sell them off, but that could be a hot market. So I say in a, a market that's seller hot and buyer hot, they're both hot, right? So I don't ever think of a hot and cold. It's, it's all good. It's just, you have to know how to react to those markets to stay on top of things and stay profitable. Okay, Nathan's blowing me up, I love it. Okay, Nathan, again, what's working for you with finding leads deals now? I realize every market's different. Do you send mail postcards all the time? Then very PPC Facebook ads, depending on conditions. So traditionally for me, direct mail has been the workhorse. I've gotten the vast majority of my deals from direct mail. When the pandemic hit, other markets were a little different. Michigan was really, really hit hard and people were really, really scared. And so 
direct mail took a hit from a from a production standpoint because people started for there was a period of time at the beginning of the pandemic where people literally wouldn't touch their mail like they were leaving it outside and they were using like you know tongs to pick them up or gloves like they wouldn't touch their mail so our, our, our mail just wasn't being effective. It started really just, it dropped off the cliff. It wasn't doing anything. So we moved uh, our focus a little more into PPC, which if you're listening to this and you don't know what PPC is, it's uh, Google AdWords. You know, somebody types in, sell my house fast in Nevada. And then whatever Google gives you, those, those top three or four things are ads. And so you can bid on being at the top of that list if someone types in certain keywords. So PPC started working really, really well for us. And it kind of took the place of direct mail in terms of the production that we were getting from direct mail. And we weren't, we weren't, we stopped doing direct mail altogether at some point last year. We haven't gone back to direct mail very much. We've been sticking with PPC and we've added cold calling and that works really, really well. But you asked me if I change depending on the conditions. I don't change my marketing based off of market conditions. I change my marketing and listen to this because this is probably, it's not what you're asking 100%, but it's maybe the most important thing I'm going to say tonight of of all things I said. We don't change our marketing based off of market conditions. We adjust our marketing based off of the metrics that we track. We do more of things or less of things from a marketing standpoint based on how effective they are. You heard me say, I stopped doing direct mail last year for a while because of the pandemic and the fact that the the effectiveness of direct mail dropped off a cliff. But PPC, I noticed at the same time, had an uptick. We started getting more deals than we usually did from PPC because more people were at home typing into their computer, how do I sell my house? So I watch the metrics or the KPIs, we call them, key performance indicators. We have a, we have a dashboard of KPIs or metrics that we track in our business and marketing is tracked. And so when we see marketing start working better or stop working, we turn up the, the, the spend or down the spend, depending on how well it's working. So that's why we change our marketing, not market conditions. It's, it's our metrics. It's what we're tracking and we know it's effective or not. Okay. Nathan, you provide tremendous value, Mike. I'm curious about your dispositions process. How do you send out your deals to your email list? Does everyone get it all at once or based on a few pointed questions and categories, flippers, wholesalers, buy and hold, each of them get different deals or do they get the same deals, all the same deals sent to them? Good question, Nathan. And I'll tell you, I have a, I, dispositions for me is sort of when, when I was in my business day to day, like doing the work, dispositions was my superpower. That's what I'm really, really good at. Like, you could sucker me into a three-hour conversation about dispositions because I feel very, very passionate about that particular aspect of wholesaling um, because I'm good at it. I think I understand it really, really well and I'm really good. But also I think people tend to discount how important that position is and they put all of their eggs in the acquisition or the sales bucket and then they treat dispositions like a necessary evil, okay? So how do I send out my deals to my list? Everybody gets everything at the same time. And if you just listen to that one thing I tell you, I swear to you, it'll make you so much more money this year than you would have made if you don't listen. So I'm going to say it again. 
we get a deal in-house under contract. It goes out to every single person on my list at the same time. Nobody gets a first look. Nobody gets a buy it now price. Nobody gets a segregated list. And here's why. If you tell me, Nathan, for example, since I'm talking to you, if you tell me that you only want buy and hold properties, you don't want anything that's not a good rental. Two problems. Number one, I don't know necessarily how you evaluate rentals and what you think is a good rental versus what I think is a good rental. So right away, I don't even necessarily want to start being really um, uh, picky about what I'm sending you because how do I know that you don't look at rentals differently than me? But let's just say, for example, you sit down with me and say, Mike, this is exactly how I evaluate rentals. And I say, Nathan, I get it. I understand how you evaluate rentals. Now, the, the other reason why I won't do that is even though I know how you evaluate rentals, Nathan, and you only want rentals, you only want rental properties, and you show me exactly how to do it, and I 100% get it. Here's the problem. How do I know you don't wake up in a month, six months, a year, or even a, six days, and you decide, maybe you and your wife are talking, you and your business partner, maybe you're just sitting home talking to the dog, and you realize, I want to start flipping houses. I want to flip properties. How do I know that? How do I, as your wholesaler who doesn't talk to you, I just send you deals. How would I ever know that? You would have to pick up the phone and tell me, number one, which is unlikely, but maybe. But now I've got 4,000 people on my buyer's list. And I'm trying to keep track of all of their business models when they decide to change strategies all of these things, like it's impossible. So I'm going to end up not sending you deals, Nathan, that you would have really wanted because I think you're only buy and hold guy. You're buy and hold, Nathan. You're not house flipper, Nathan. And I, I won't necessarily know that unless we have that communication. But then remember, you may only have one wholesaler, which would be a mistake, by the way, but you may only have one wholesaler, but I've got 4,000 buyers. How in the world do I keep up with all of these changing ideas and opinions and different strategies and all the market change? Like it's impossible, right? And it really only benefits maybe the buyer a little bit, but not even because if I don't know you change your strategy, it doesn't really benefit you. But I want, I want, I want open competition to prevail. I want to send my houses to everybody because heck, you may not even want to flip houses, but I send you something that doesn't make it doesn't look like a good rental, but maybe you're bored that day and you look at it and you go, my goodness, there's a lot of money in here to flip this thing. Like this is a, this is a super great deal. Maybe I'll flip it, right? There's no way either one of us could have predicted that. So everybody gets everything at the same time. I don't care if you've bought a hundred houses from me or you've never bought a house. It's going to show up in your inbox at the exact same time because I will always make more money. My company will always make more money if I do it that way. We will immediately day one start losing money the minute we segregate out all of our buyers and we start giving our really good buyers the first look and the first chance to get the properties before everybody else. Like That only benefits a buyer. It doesn't benefit you. And by the way, when I say I'll make more money and the company will make more money, my team, most of my team is tied to the profits. So they make more money if I do a great job in dispositions, right? So I could go on and on, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, send them all out at the same time, 
Don't give anybody preferential treatment. Treat everyone great. And hey, if you have good buyers and you want to give them some kind of a perk, pick up the phone, go out to lunch with them, hang out with them, send them a gift basket, buy them a car, but do not give them the first look or any sort of VIP treatment when it comes to seeing new deals, because you will immediately start losing money. And the minute you stop doing that, you will immediately start making more money. Simple as that. Okay. Next question. Another, okay. Another one from Nathan. Tell me to shut up if you like. <laughs> no, no way, man. I love it. Keep them coming. Where can I find a dispo specialist? Generally speaking, I'm looking for some ideas, type of personality, current line of work. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, and I told you, you'll sucker me if you keep the dispo questions coming. I always will. Um, by the way, thank you for saying I, I provide tremendous value. I appreciate that. I try to. So you you saying it is is nice. And it maybe it's psychologically it's keeping me focused on answering endless questions because I I love when uh, I love when people ask questions, but I also appreciate the compliment. Um, okay, uh, where can I find a dispo specialist? So I don't know if there's a dispo specialist uh, you know store, but your questions are great personality. Here's what you need. Let's just, I'll talk about the disc uh, assessment because I've, I've, I've talked about personality assessments on here many times. And I do think you should have anyone you're going to hire, take a personality assessment and the disc is free. I think it's still free. So on the disc, here's what you would want as a personality. Um, ideally the most important thing, in my opinion, for the disc personality for a dispo person is a high D as high a D as you can get. What does D mean? It's a long, you could, it, we could talk for hours about the disc, but uh, a summarization of the D trait is someone who is, uh, who can work independently, someone who's hard driving, someone who must win. They must win. They're very driven and they're very competitive. That's a D. You need that personality in a dispo person because a buyer will run over or run through a weak dispositions person, someone who's easily influenced, someone who's easily intimidated, someone who uh, has a hard time with negotiating. It's very tough for them to succeed in that position. So high D, I think the I doesn't have to be very high. I represents how sociable or how much they like talking and interacting with people. Um, if, if, if the I is too high, by the way, you're going to get someone who has a need to be liked more than their need to win. So if the D is not as high as the I, you'll get someone who, who cares more about being liked than winning. And that's no good. Right. So switch those high D. I don't really care where the I is somewhere in the middle is fine. The S, um, S represents patience and pace. And so I want someone who has a low S. That means they're impatient. They want to get things done now. Speed is important. And the C is um, like a detail and mastery and how thorough are they? How, how good are they at like really catching all the details and tracking all the data? Um, chances are you're not going to get someone with a high D, a low S, and a high C. You're probably going to end up with someone who has a middle of the road or lower C, which is which is okay, right? You can work around that. But I say at the very least, you want a high D, I, middle of the road's fine, 
S, you want that to be a little lower, kind of less than 50%. And the C, as high as you can find somebody, because the better they are with details, the better it's going to be. They won't miss a lot of details. But that's what I would look for in the, in the disc. Current line of work, I think someone who is, you know, I always say, I've never found this person, but I always say someone who had to negotiate contracts in a union environment, like maybe someone who worked for the UAW negotiating contracts or someone who worked for the Teamsters, anything, anybody who has a contract, they're negotiating, like that's the person. Because an acquisitions person is like a traditional salesperson. They have to have good side, good bedside manner. They have to be really good at empathizing with a seller and really getting into their pain points and understanding and, and, and caring and, and really kind of emotionally getting involved that is not a dispo person. Okay. You're being called by buyers because they're looking at numbers in an email and they're calling. And one of the first questions are going to be, Hey, is that the best you can do on that house? Or would you take this? Or tell me how much rehab it needs. Like you're, you're negotiating the minute you pick up the phone with a buyer, it's a negotiation. So you want someone who's not easily intimidated, someone who's good at negotiating. Um, you know, and I, so I think someone who negotiated contracts, maybe a used car salesman, you know, they're usually, they're not run, you can't run over them pretty easy. They're very forceful. They kind of have a, a forceful presence. Um, I think they could be good. Frankly, I think a, a used car salesman would be good for acquisitions too, but maybe a little heavy handed, but if they had a little bit more, um, you know, softer side, but I think those are, those are some good, anybody who had to negotiate in a hostile environment, a military person, someone who, hostage negotiation for goodness sakes that would probably be good but someone who had who has had a military background and they had to deal with very very um type a very forceful very powerful personalities they had to work with them and and, and kind of um you know maybe manage them i think they would be great too frankly but when you take the disc high d low s those are the two that i would focus on the most okay uh ron Speaking facts. <laughs> Thank you, man. Uh, I had a tough deal. I'm sorry. I had a tough deal to dispo and only one buyer interested. He was an, a new buyer and he literally ran over me on it. Okay. That happens. It, I can't, a new buyers usually don't run over people, but okay. He ran over you. It must've been all over my tone, how much I needed him. The, wor the worst buyer's list is the buyer's list of one. And I always tell people too, Sometimes people will tell me this and they'll say it almost like with a badge of honor. They'll say, oh, Dispo, that's no problem. I got a guy in my market, he'll buy everything. And I just, I just shake my head. It's like nails on a chalkboard. If you have one person interested in your deal, you are screwed. You need a bidding war. You need more than one person. You need that competition to, to kind of take hold because having only one buyer is bad. But if they know they're the only buyer, that's really bad. So yeah, man, dispo people are at risk to get run over. You have to be very tough. You have to be very matter of fact. You can certainly be friendly, but you have to make sure that you're not letting them run over you. And above all else, build that buyer's list, grow your buyer's list. You need a big buyer's list. And it's not the size of the buyer's list, but it's a numbers game like everything else in real estate. You only need a handful of great buyers, really. You know, the more the better. But if if it takes, and this is probably pretty accurate numbers, if it takes, you know, a hundred people on your buyers list to get, you know, 
two or three really, really good, solid buyers, then imagine if you had 200, 500, 1,000, right? So I have 4,000 buyers on my list right now, or 4,500 maybe. We probably sell to the same 25 or 30 people. I, it doesn't matter that I have 4,000 or 4,500. I just need those 20 or 30 that are really, really great. But I wouldn't have found them if I didn't build my buyers list up as big as I could. Right, I probably should build it even bigger. Honestly, that's one of the things that I I neglect sometimes at my own peril. But build that buyers list up so that you can find those diamonds in the rough. Right, those buyers that are really, really gonna pay top dollar. They're gonna make your life easy. They get the process. They're not antagonistic. They're not trying to run over you. You can have good relationship with relationships with those folks. But there will be buyers that will come along that will try to muscle you. They'll try to strong arm you. They'll try to intimidate you. They'll run right over you, like you said, Ron. So you have to build up the buyer's list, but get someone in there in that position, whether it's you or somebody else, who's who just doesn't take any crap. And that that's the best person. <clears throat> okay, guys, thank you for all of the questions here in the comments, all the organic uh, questions. Nathan uh, said, I'm dropping gold bombs or gold nuggets. I'm sorry, gold nuggets. Not bombs. I'll drop bombs another day. I just, I threw nuggets on you guys. I don't want to hurt you. But thank you for saying that. Thank you for uh, all of the uh, questions, all the organic stuff that came through. I really appreciate you guys logging in. It was fun talking to you. We'll be here again next week at seven o'clock Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. If you haven't checked it out yet, guys, if you want more of this, by the way, if you want more of me, if you want more of, of me helping dial into your business and really giving you all the strategies, everything you need to either grow, or launch your business if you haven't started yet. There, It is possible to build it wrong, to build it on a weak foundation that will crumble. I want to stop that from happening. I, I don't want to see people doing that anymore. I've seen too many people do it, and I know how to fix it, and it's fixable. So let's build a good foundation, or let's take your business to the next level as fast as you can and do it as profitably, uh, profitably as you can. And to do that, go to businessfasttrackblueprint.com. Sign up for my program. It's incredibly affordable. Everyone can do it. Get in on it. I want to help you, but I can't do that if you don't raise your hand and say, hey, I need help. I want to get in the program and I want you to help me. So go check that out. Guys, we'll see you next week on the uh, live Q&A. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay. Until next time.